Well, we're going to take a straw poll this afternoon. If you have ever written or have received a love letter or a love card, some descriptive um, expression of affection, raise your hand. All right. I already feel the guilt and shame by some of you sitting next to someone that's never written. I got a, I got a, a love letter for you this afternoon. It's an anonymous letter. I don't know who wrote it. It says, Dear Jimmy, no words could express the great unhappiness I felt since breaking our engagement. Please say that you'll take me back. No one could ever take your place in my heart, so please forgive me. I love you, I love you, I love you. Yours forever, Marie. P.S. Congratulations on winning the lottery. That, that, that letter caught my eye because I feel like it gives us a good picture of love that's defined by the world. A love that seeks to find some form of advantage. I love you because you do this for me. I love you because you feel this way for me. I love you because things are good, things are happy, things are swell, things are peaceful. That's the way the world defines love. In Marie's context, I love you because you're wealthy now. And I'd like for us to get back together. We have and will continue to look at some details about love today. And we looked last week at how love is defined for us as believers that is distinct from the world. Completely separate. You have to be deprogrammed in your mind as to what love is if you are going to walk with Christ. Because the world will tell you that you need to get something out of love or you need to feel love. If you look at Merriam-Webster's Dictionary right now, sitting in your seat, you will see that the general definition of love has to do with feeling and emotion. Because... You are told that that's what it flows from in your heart. What you see, what you uh, are, uh, have affection for, what you desire, therefore is love. What we will see and what we have seen is that when the Bible describes love, it is always related to the character of God and what He does. So it's based upon His character and how He acts upon that character. Matter of fact, last week we uh, began to look at this passage in uh, 1 Corinthians 13, which interestingly has to do with spiritual gifts as Paul begins to introduce this wonderful love chapter, which Adam read uh, a portion of that for us. And it all has to do with the fact that the Corinthians were failing to show the Christian love that they had claimed to have in relationship to the spiritual gifts in the church. And so Paul takes it upon himself to go, hey, let's do a time out here. Let's talk about what love really is because I'm not really seeing it in the life of the Christians in Corinth. Paul is actually, 1 Corinthians 13, although we uh, see this in in wedding ceremonies and and such, it's really almost a rebuke by the Apostle Paul because the Corinthians had failed to show such a love. And so today we are going to submerge ourselves 
Actually, for the next three weeks into these descriptions of love, they are going to challenge us. We are going to leave this place today battered and bruised by the Holy Spirit because we all will acknowledge that we have room to grow in our understanding of love and our application of love toward other people. If you think that you've come here today have reached the climax of of understanding and applying love in in your life toward other people, you are lying to yourself. I'm lying to myself if I believe that. We all have room to grow. So a couple things that we're going to do is go slowly through these verses, 4 through 7, looking at these things so that we can have a good picture of how love is defined, how love should be applied in our lives, so that we may be the difference, as I said last week, so that we might reflect the heavenly realm of God's great love in this earth until Christ comes again. That's why we're here. And how else can people see God dwelling and, and, and existing in a, in a sense in this world if it's not through the church. They're not going to see that through what we know. They're not going to see that in our understanding and articulation of God's Word. They're going to see that first and foremost in the way we love them. And then as we love them, we teach them about God's Word from, or God's love from God's Word. And so we must love others as we first love God. And we know and understand how to love God when we understand God's love for us. So today we're going to submerge ourselves. We're going to look deep into God's love. We can be fascinated by the vastness of the ocean if you're a beach person. You can be fascinated by sitting in your chair on the beach watching your kids frolic in the waves in the shoreline, and yet completely and totally be unaware of the beauty and the detail and the creativity that lies underneath that water. And so you put on a scuba suit and and a, and a dive tank and you go beneath that water and you understand the ocean and the beauty of the ocean far greater than you did sitting on the beach. That's why we have to look at these verses today and for the next few weeks with depth because they challenge us to understand ourselves in relationship to God and His love. A few statements that I need to make about this passage. Number one, one of the main reasons why we define God's love as not an emotion and not a feeling but an action is because of this verse or these verses. When you read these verses, you see the description, love is patient. Okay? For all you English majors, you have the subject, the verb, and the direct object. So in a sense, the word patient is the the adjective. It's describing the type of love, right? But in the Greek language, the reason why Greek is so important, the reason why the original languages are so important, is because there's two words in these sentences. A subject, love, and a verb. They're all verbs. Every one of them. Love suffers long. That's one verb. Suffering long, or as we would say, is patient. 
It's a present active verb, meaning that love continually suffers long. Love continually expresses patience. That's how we come to understand this. And so therefore, it calls us then to a continual practice, a continual obedience to applying love toward other people, not when we feel like it, not in situational or circumstantial uh, situations, but continual throughout our lives. Why? Because that is the love that God has manifested to us. I don't love... He, he doesn't say, I love you because you did these things. That's continual or conditional. He loves us unconditionally, even though you blank. Even while we were sinners, Romans 5 tells us, God loves us. Even while we were sinners. So know and understand, as great Toby Mack and, 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 um, and his group from the 90s tells us, love is a what? Love is a verb. Thank you, two people over here. Love is a verb. Secondly, these commands that we're going to look at are not calling believers to be perfect in this area. God understands us. He knows that we are going to fail at all these things. So He is calling us by the power of the Holy Spirit to grow in areas that we will never fully perfect until heaven. Well, we will experience eternal, perfect love from the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Until then, grow in your application of love. You're not called to be perfect. R.C. Sproul writes, quote, A look at this chapter, chapter 13, should provoke us to a deep repentance because it reveals what agape love demands of us as we are called to be imitators of God. But as the demands of agape are spelled out for us, they reveal the nature of the love in the character of God Himself. When we measure our behavior against God's standard, it is clear our behavior falls short of what love requires. So you're going to read this, or you're going to hear this, and you're going to like, man, I am not a patient, loving person. Folks, this is why we have the gospel renewal every week. Because we're not calling you to look at God's Word and go, man, I'll fall short and leave here driving home in your car, feel like you've been beaten and battered. If you believe the Gospel, if you rest in Jesus, if you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, then you are resting in God and what He has done for you, knowing that He is growing you in these areas. And that it's only by Jesus, only by His grace, only by His mercy, can you be a loving patient, kind person to other people. It's only by Him. Because you have a transformed heart by the Spirit. The whole context of Paul's message. That the Spirit changes you. The Spirit gives you the longing to love as God loves. And gives you a continual power that flows in you to display that love to others. And the beauty about all this is that because you're unable and the Spirit is able, God gets the glory. 
God gets the glory. Men, when you are patient with your wife, it's only by the power of the Spirit of God in you, therefore God gets the glory. You don't get to pat yourself on the back. But by all means, when you're impatient, the Spirit will let you know if you possess the Spirit of God. And He will move you to change. He does that in His Word. Here's a couple of the details of love that we're going to focus on today. Love, I already gave you the first one. Love suffers long. Love suffers long. In your Bible it says love is patient. It literally means to suffer long with injury that has been directed at a person. We can all relate to this in the context of a world full of sin. Where people throw insults at us, hate at us, physical attacks are hurled at us. Sin not only invites conflicts with other people, but sin in this world invites circumstances that require us to suffer long with them. So you are rather suffering long with a person or with a position in your life, a circumstance, a place that God has put you that you are called to suffer long. Bodily ailments, disease, conflict in your family. You are called as God's people, regardless, to suffer long or be patient. Now, I want you to think about this as the defensive Uh, the the defense for the Christian life. This is a defensive aspect for the Christian life. Suffering long is this mental, emotional control of a person to withhold and stand firm from the passions that may lead us to react negatively and ungodly in difficult situations. One commentator describes it as, quote, holding out before fuming and breaking into flames, end quote. You ever feel that way? That internal rage at the person at the stoplight in front of you that's on their phone instead of driving when the light turns green? You following me? Just some personal sin of mine. The rage, and what do we do? As believers, we can lay on the horn... We can stick our our gestures out out of our window. We can even in our minds think horrible things about them or we can suffer long. We can suffer long. We don't know what's going on with that person. It doesn't really matter. Because as God's people, what right do we have to do anything but what God has done with us suffering long? It's a defensive aspect of our Christian conduct because it keeps us from lashing out at anger at our enemies or lashing out at anger at our circumstances, but instead the Spirit empowers us and gives us the patience that we need and helps us to long suffer and hold steady. We see this beautifully in Jesus Christ. When His accusations... When accusations were, were being hurled at him about his insanity, which, by the way, came from his own family members, he said nothing. When the religious leaders called him a blasphemer, when he, had, when, when he was insulted and spit upon, he retaliated not. Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. 
like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before it shears, so he did not open his mouth. There Jesus is giving us the beautiful and prime example that to show love to others... The greatest aspect and display of love in Christ and His sacrifice on the cross, He is long-suffering with His enemies so that we can understand long-suffering. Peter tells us that God's love is displayed in His long-suffering and His patience with us. Day by day, week by week, up until the moment in which the Holy Spirit transformed your life, when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and you had no condition or reason by which God was going to show you love, God maintained your heart beating. He allowed you to have breath in your lungs. He guided and directed your path toward a person or a place where you would hear the Gospel. And He opened your mind In all these moments and days of your existence before that, you were a blasphemer. You were a rebel at heart. You had defied God in every way and you didn't even know it. And what did God do? He long-suffered with you. Day by day, long-suffered with you in your sin, in your rebellion, in my sin, and in my rebellion until He came and saved you. He opened your mind. You had a Damascus Road type experience. God helped you see the gospel. God gave you the beauty or the eyes to see His beauty of the cross. Instead of seeing a a place of torture, you saw a place of beauty and redemption and rescue. God gave you that. He long suffered with you to the point that He saved you. So when you hear someone... Read 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, and they are a critic of this verse. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient or long-suffering towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come repentance. Be reminded that you are a part of those whom He desire to come to repentance, to turn from sin, to turn from hatred, to turn from jealousy and anger, and wrath to turn from idolatry and blasphemy against your Creator. He waited, and He waited, and He waited longer than any of us would wait for anybody or anything so that you could come to Christ, and now you're here. Praise God. Praise God for His glory. So then, or therefore, we are called... To suffer long because of God's love, we are called to suffer love long with others. It's the first component of love that's mentioned. And as I told you last week, it has clear connections to Galatians chapter 5 and the fruits of the Spirit as we see these characteristics of the Spirit of God bearing fruit in our life. In that list, we read the Spirit creates love in us. He creates peace. He creates patience. All three connected to long-suffering. How are you patient? You understand the reality of God's patience with you. And because of the Spirit within you, you display the defensive position 
of withholding anger, withholding wrath, and instead long-suffering with someone who who deserves or or is undeserving of it. You are seeking peace in that situation as a peacemaker with that person. You are suffering long with the insults and the injuries of this world. So you can imagine the reflection that it's required of us here. Lord, what what areas of my life do I fail to suffer long? What areas of my life am I not being patient with this person or this situation? When we fail to suffer long, oftentimes we find some justifiable reason why we don't need to do such a thing. It's too hard. This person's my enemy. You don't understand what's gone on in my life with that person that, that makes me not want to suffer long. And then we look at Jesus. And Jesus says, no, you don't understand how much I've suffered long. You don't understand. You forget your own lifestyle of sin and rebellion. And yet I came to die. And so our understanding of suffering long, our understanding of its aspects with God's love, compels us to suffer long as well. Now the offensive position. The defense is putting away putting a, a quenching blanket of, upon the flames of, of our reactions toward our tragedies and our injuries. And the second is suffering long with kindness. Love is patient. Love is kind. Kindness is the offensive. Defensive is suffering long. The offensive is we suffer long with kindness. We have to put on kindness. Kindness is the offense because it requires us again to act. Long-suffering is an internal action. Right? We don't... We may sit quietly and maybe we're, we're, we're shaking a little bit and, and our face is red and people are like, what's wrong with you? You might blurt out, I'm just long-suffering right now. Right? But the offensive action in response to God's love for you, is the fact that you are putting on kindness. Kindness in the midst of injury. Kindness in the midst of difficulty. We push back rage and revenge. We put on kindness. Kindness literally means a willingness to be helpful and useful. Couple that action with those in this world, those who would hurt you or attack you, And we see a much clearer picture of God's love that has been manifested for His people. Who has the capacity in this world, in our own strength, to be a helper to our enemies? Who has the mental or emotional fortitude to look into the eyes of those who hate us and instead of extending a fist of rage and revenge, we're like, can I just help you? Can I cook you a meal? Can I cut your grass? I know you hate me. I know you've talked bad about my children. I know that you've backstabbed me at work. But can I just come over and and paint your house? We don't think that way. 
Matter of fact, if you're honest with yourself, when you rage in anger, it feels good. If you're honest. And that feeling of goodness is still the indwelling sin of your old self that you are fighting against every day. Knowing that that is naturally a part of you because of sin, but unnatural if the Spirit of God has changed you. And because when the Spirit of God changes you, and you rage in that way, you immediately feel shame and guilt. Why? Because the Spirit's convicting you. And so the opposite effect, the opposite response of rage is kindness. God giving us the strength in His Spirit to be a helping hand to those who may injure us. Now I want us to for a sake, well, for a second, consider the opposite response. Because it's helpful for us in this moment to say, okay, well, I, I understand you, Pastor, I, I want to put on kindness, but I'll be honest, I relate more to revenge. So let's talk about revenge for a second. Revenge is the opposite of kindness. Revenge is the plan of Satan, while kindness is the work of God. Revenge led to Cain murdering his brother, while kindness was displayed in David toward his son Absalom, who was trying to kill his own father. Jonathan Edwards writes, There are many ways in which men do that which is revengeful. Not merely by actually bringing some immediate suffering on the one that may have injured them, but by anything, either in speech or behavior, which shows a bitterness of spirit against him for what he has done. Thus, he says, if after we are offended or injured, we speak reproachfully to our neighbor or of him to others with a design to lower or injure him, that we may gratify the bitter spirit we feel in our hearts for the injury that our neighbor has done to us. This, he says, is revenge, end quote. Now, when we consider our desire toward revenge, we understand the power of kindness that is manifested in us. Church, listen to me. You don't have to be revengeful. If you belong to Christ, the Spirit of God will help you put to death revenge and put on kindness. He will do it because the power of the Holy Spirit within you is powerful enough to create all things out of nothing. He can create kindness in you to apply to other people. He will help you be the helpful, kind believer in the same, uh, with the same action will help you put away the wrath that you feel within. Again, Edwards writes, in Jesus, in him that excuse me, in him that exercises the Christian spirit as he ought, there will not be a passionate, rash, or hasty expression, or a bitter, exasperated countenance, or an air of violence in the talk or behavior. But on the contrary, Edwards writes, the countenance and words and demeanor will all manifest the savor of peacefulness and calmness. And gentleness. This is what the Spirit does in us. 
This leads us to be people who are doers of good and helpers in a generation and a world that, fail, that, in my opinion, is failing to do good and be helpers in our world today. I am disturbed by a generation of people that I see in the world that fail to be helpers and doers of good. Matter of fact, I am more, I am so, I am so disturbed because the trend these days is to record evil on our phones with them in our hands than putting our phones down and using our hands to do good toward a circumstance or situation. We are fascinated by the video evidence of evil instead of stepping in and doing good to help. Even in the church. Even in Christians. We're obsessed with it. In church, the the Bible is telling us that kindness is literally using our hands to do what God has described putting kindness and help for some or giving kindness and help for someone else. There's myriads of examples in the Bible. The Good Samaritan's a pretty good one. In spite of his cultural enemies, the Good Samaritan goes above and beyond helping a Jewish man in an unexpected moment. The Samaritan shows kindness by caring for an injured Jew over and above what other people might say, over and above being socially ostracized for his own interaction with his enemies. This Samaritan goes to great lengths of personal sacrifice to be, to be a help and show kindness towards someone in need. And again, we can come up with all kinds of rationale why we don't help or we can just get busy helping. The Bible tells us that God's kindness is manifested to us in the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ is kindness personified. He comes to help the helpless during His earthly ministry. He foreshadows His work upon the cross in every social interaction He has as He goes about helping people in difficult situations. He was kind to social and personal enemies like the Samaritan woman and his friend Judas. He heals beggars instead of ignoring them. He cares for widows and desperate fathers like Jairus. Most importantly, he's foreshadowing the work upon the cross when he comes and gives his life for all of us who are in desperate need of someone to help us. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion... Kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Now, this passage in Colossians 3 is, it follows an entire passage of, of the former sins that we have put off to put on these things that Paul mentions in Colossians 3. 
But I want us to focus on the way he ends this list. And we could have just, I could just preach through this list. It's almost the same. We do all these things. We, we put on all these things. We act out in, in, in these godly virtues. Why? Because the Lord has done these for us. And so therefore, we are compelled to forgive. We are kept, compelled to long suffer. But we're not just compelled, church. The Spirit of God gives us the desire. He gives us the desire to do these things. Maybe not initially, Maybe your flesh rises up initially and you want to be vengeful. But He calms you and and you suppress that and you quench the flames by His power and you put on kindness and you give help. Not because the person deserves it, because God deserves the honor and the glory in your actions and obedience. So how can we hold grudges? How can we as Christians act unkindly or carry out revenge for others if we say that Christ is our Lord? Christian, we cannot hold out on these things. Bitterness cannot be our bedfellow. Resentment cannot be our friend if we cling to Christ with one hand and hold on to resentment and anger with the other. Instead, Christian love compels us to show kindness and be help to others, even our enemies. And finally, and I just got through one verse, love is not jealous. The first two statements are given in the positive, and most of the other ones are in the negative. And so, of course, we will look at them in their negative state and their positive state. I like to dwell on the positive. I'm a half glass full kind of guy. And so I'm going to give it to you in the the positive. If love is not jealous, it means that love is content. A content heart is a heart that strives for love. Let me explain. The third characteristic of love here, which is described as not jealous, it's probably one of the easiest Greek words for you to remember. It's the word zeleo, Z-E-L-O-O. And it sounds a lot like our English word, zealous. Okay? Zeleo, zealous. If you are zealous for something, you positively act toward that thing with passion toward accomplishing a task or goal in your life. My children, my daughters, most importantly, are zealous for soccer. My son is overly zealous for football. It is a passion of his. The Bible describes zealousness or passionate uh, longing and activity in this aspect of God. God is, we are told in Isaiah 26, He is zealous for His people. So the positive of zealous is we are passionately acting in a positive way toward those whom we love. God in particular acts passionately 
in zeal for His people. O Lord, the Bible says in Isaiah 26, Your hand is lifted up, yet they do not see. They see your zeal for the people and are put to shame. Indeed, fire will devour your enemies. God has passionate love for His people. This is called zeal. But in the negative, zeal is sinful with men. In a negative sense, zeal is passion for things which we do not have and do not belong to us. This is jealousy. Zeal for other people's fame, zeal for other people's successes, zeal for other people's popularity, fill in the blank. We desire that which does not belong to us, and therefore we are jealous people. Now you can imagine in the context of Paul's letter that not only are the Corinthians not showing patience and long-suffering with other believers in the church, not only are they not putting on kindness and helpfulness toward them, but they are jealous over gifts in the church. Well, this person's got this gift. He must be more important than me. Well, this guy practices this gift. Look at, look, look at all the fame and the success that he has that I don't have. And church, jealousy in its root form is when a person is not content with what God has given them. It is a failure to trust in the sovereign provision of God for your life. Instead of trusting the Lord and all that He has given you with His precision and provision. Listen, you have exactly what you need in this exact moment every day. God has never given you too much and He's never given you not enough. It's never outside of the will of God. He is exactly precise in His provision. Therefore, we must be content. But instead of our being content, we fall into jealousy. We fall into jealousy towards others. And in in that jealousy, we fail to love them. How can you love someone if you're jealous of what belongs to them? Instead of love, our jealousy leads to what? Contempt, rivalry, competitiveness. Listen, my sister and I were the most competitive siblings on the face of the earth. And it was not out of love. If she wanted to race, I would do everything in my power to beat her. And I usually lost. But I was going to try. Because I did not want her to get the fame and the glory of beating me in a race. I want to be a better parent. I want to be more successful. These are the, the attitudes of jealousy just that resides within siblings. And I can lead to contempt. And hate for each other. Again, Edwards writes, This spirit is especially called envy when we dislike and are opposed to another's honor or prosperity. Because in general, it's greater than our own. Or because in particular, they have some honor or enjoyment that we do not have. It is a disposition natural to men that they love to be uppermost. And this disposition, he writes, is directly crossed when we see others above them. 
And it is from this spirit that men dislike and are opposed to the prosperity of others because it thinks, because they think it makes those who possess it superior in some respect to themselves. And from the same disposition, he writes, a person may dislike another's being equal to himself in honor or happiness or in having the same sources of enjoyment that he has. For as men very commonly are, they cannot bear a rival much, if any, better than a superior. For they love to be singular and alone in their eminence and advancement. Man, he nails it on the head, church. He nails it on the head of our problem of jealousy in a culture. Always trying to give or one-up someone else. I mentioned this earlier, but we again see the story of Cain and Abel rise to the surface. Or maybe Joseph and his brothers, where jealousy consumes them, leading them to hate and murder or attempted murder. And while though the the word jealousy is not used in the story, it isn't hard to deduce such an emotion, for example, in the story of Cain and Abel. In that story, God accepted the offering of Abel and not Cain because it was Abel that gave God his best of, of his offering, while the attitude behind Cain's offering was more of arrogance and unbelief. The writer of Hebrews gives us some clarity in verse 4 of chapter 11. He writes, by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. By faith. What did Cain lack? Faith in his offering. A faith in God. An attitude of obedience and and, and seeking to give God his best. And because he lacked faith, Cain instead was consumed with anger. And what did he do? He retaliated. Instead of being angry with God, Cain turned to his brother, Abel, and in jealousy and wrath, he murdered his brother. When we think about this story, we understand the situation as really a crossroads of Cain simply being content with the discipline from God. Cain got caught. He gave an offering to the Lord that was not acceptable. And instead of learning from those things, he was discontent with the situation. And in being discontent, it led to jealousy. And in that jealousy, it turned to wrath, and then it turned to murder. Instead of showing love from God, it showed hate toward God and those whom He created. And similarly, when jealousy consumes us, We are driven from love to hate. We hate those who who have what we want, and we hate God for not giving it to us accordingly. But James corrects us in James chapter 3. He says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. It's interesting. 
That when we are so competitive and so envious and jealous and zealous for that which other people have, we are doing the very bidding of Satan himself. Because it creates contention. It creates strife. It creates conflict. It separates and not binds together God and His people. It creates division and war. War between individuals or even war between nations. It's the very envy and jealousy that put the Lord Jesus on the cross by His enemies. If you'll remember the story of Pontius Pilate and with Jesus battered and bruised at his side, he has between him Jesus and a criminal Barabbas. And the Bible tells us in Matthew that when presenting the crowd of Jews the option of who to let go and set free, the crowd chooses the criminal Barabbas over the innocent, sinless Son of God, Jesus. And in Matthew chapter 27, verse 17 and 18... Pilate says to them, Who do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? And the Bible says in verse 18, For he knew that because of envy they had handed him over. The very religious leaders had stirred up the crowds because of jealousy and because of envy. And they were filled with this demonic envy in their unbelief and it led them to allow a criminal to go free while sending the innocent Jesus to perish on the cross. And so God calls us to turn away from jealousy and put on contentment. Be happy with what God has blessed you with. And I know it's hard. But when you are content with what God has provided for you, then you are able to love people the way that God desires for you to love them. You won't have this invisible internal fence and obstacle set up between you and them because of jealousy. The gates will be open for you to love them and care for them the way that God intends because you want the best for them. So a heart with contentment is a heart that rejoices in other people's prosperity. When your boss gives out raises and you don't get one, the Holy Spirit within you should rise up and cause you to rejoice even when you miss out on a promotion. Even when you don't get team captain even when someone else gets the reward at school. Whatever the situation may be, the Spirit of God is bringing forth godliness in your life. Timothy is told by Paul very, very simply and profoundly how we should look at contentment. But godliness, he says, actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world and therefore can take and cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. 
Paul reminds us that God has given us all we need and in proportion to what He desires for us to have. And therefore, as God's people are called to love as He loves, we must not allow jealousy and envy to affect our love for others. But instead, we will love and we will find joy at other people's successes and accolades. We will rejoice in the good gifts that God has given us and the good gifts that God has given them. Even if their gifts are more than ours or shinier than ours, or more updated than ours. Because God has blessed this world with His good gifts. Three details of God's love. Long-suffering, kindness, contentment. The challenge for us is to strive to put on and to put off the positive and the negative of these aspects. To put off impatience and suffer long. To put off um, hate and, div- and division and, and, and strife and war and to put on helpfulness and kindness. To get rid of jealousy and envy and instead be content so that we might love as the, the way that God desires. I'll finish with this poem. It says, Love ever gives, forgives, outlives, and ever stands with an open hand. And while it lives, it gives, for this is the, pow- the, the love and its prerogative, to give and to give and to give. Church, I want to challenge us to evaluate in our own lives ways that the Spirit of God has convicted us to grow and to change in this way. And if by all means we do not understand and see the beauty of Christ's love that is manifested in these characteristics of God's love, we should repent. We should trust